1 Samuel 16, the first thought that comes to mind is that our eyes can really deceive us. So I have a few pictures I'd like to show you. These are, how many would eat these fruit? How many would eat this strawberry and apple? So these are all pictures I'm going to show you that your eyes may deceive you and you may not want to eat it after you see it. So these pictures are beautiful and they seem tasty, but the way they make it glisten is they use hairspray before they take a picture to make it glisten. Here's another one. That is some luscious pancake. And I love, who likes syrup? I love syrup. Maple syrup, Vermont, woo! How many of you would eat it with this? This is what the actual syrup is. They use motor oil. <laughs> because if you use syrup, it soaks in and it makes the pancake soggy, so photographers use motor oil to make the picture look more tasty. Suckers, all of you, suckers. Wow. Woo! I love this cake, white cake with cream. How many of you would eat that for your birthday? Today we have a few birthdays in our church. It's cardboard to keep the cake moist and separate it so it doesn't get soggy, so it makes it look plump, and they cover it up with icing. Here's another one. That looks legit. I mean, how can you go wrong with ice cream? Except you're taking photographs in about 85-degree weather, and ice cream will melt. So what do they use? Mashed potatoes <laughs> with food coloring. So parents, that's a sick joke. On a hot day, get mashed potatoes and put food coloring and give it to your kids. They're going to be like, you hate me. Oh, last one. Cereal looks so good. Kids, youth, you would eat this cereal? Yeah, it's pretty good, right? What is, what is that? They use Elmer's glue as milk so that the milk looks extra luscious and the cereal pops. So, so the point of this is our eyes can trick us, and we fall for that. Those are advertisements. So you go out and buy cereal. You go out and buy strawberries. You go out. What if we realize that to be tricked by food is one thing, but what if you get tricked with your eyes to go into a bad relationship? What if you get tricked into buying a car you, you have no business buying, you can't afford? What if you get tricked into thinking, maybe I know better than God? And so this is why God says, trust me. See from my perspective. So we need to see how God sees. And the prime verse that we see in today is 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. And it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height or of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And I just proved it. We looked at these commercials and we see with our eyes and we say, that's good. And some of you, if you ate it, you would have been dead. <laughs> but there's a lot of poisons out there in life, and we need to start seeing how God sees things. So we tend to see superficially, God always looks at the substance of the heart. He looks at the person's content. And so our default setting in life is to just look at the exterior. Sometimes I love this church as a side, but some of you looked at the church and said, wow, this church is beautiful. Sometimes you could have a beautiful building and have a horrible community. Conversely, you could have a great, beautiful community 
us meeting in an alleyway, and there could be an incredible worship. And so we have to check, are we looking at our, through our eyes or through something that God sees? To all this, God's version of 1 Samuel 16, 7 is, I do not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord, I, I look at your heart. Now, we could just stop there and pray for one hour for the rest of the sermon. Because if you sit here realizing God sees everything in your heart, how would you feel? So, a little background of where this text came from is, as we're going through 1 Samuel, Saul was the first king of Israel. Israel, remember, said, we want a king just like every other nation. And God said, Samuel, they're not rejecting me. They're, reject they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And, and God rejected Saul because Saul's heart as a king, beautiful and handsome, became unfaithful to God. He became arrogant. He even built a monument for himself. Just a side note, if you ever build a monument for yourself, you might be a little arrogant. <laughs> so, you know, Kathy's, my wife's birthday's tomorrow. Kathy, I got you the best present. Made you a marble statue of me. <laughs> Keep it. Some of you are like, is that a true story? And, and so Saul reigned as king for years still, but early on in his years, God already rejected him. He ended up reigning for king, but God's blessing and anointing had left him. And without God's spirit, Saul was just an acting king. He didn't have God's favor. 1 Samuel 16, 14 says, Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and the harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Wow. And so God began preparing a new king. He was actually doing this well before in chapter 13. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom forever and ever. But now your kingdom shall not continue, and the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. See, God loves us, and he has grace for us, but when we violate and disobey and turn away from God, he doesn't reject you eternally, but in that position, he may say, you lost this privilege. We see that with pastors all the time. This isn't privilege. I'm not entitled to this. If I turn away from God, can I lose being a pastor? Absolutely. This is God's ordained blessing. And Saul turned away. So Samuel is sent by God to find a new king, and Samuel is wondering, who will it be? Who is this successor to Saul? Who is it going to be? And he remembers picking Saul because he was a head above everyone else. He was good-looking, strong. And so Samuel is thinking, how do I choose? And Samuel sees one by one, potentially, seven sons. And he sees superficially, this must be the one. And God says, nope, 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 nope. And like Samuel, the way we discern, the way we choose, is always through how we per per portray superficially. So, I want to ask you a question. Do you know how many decisions you make in a given day? Just call it out. How many decisions do you think you make in a given day? 60? A thousand? A thousand? So think about, just, just, just for fun, think about this. Where you sat this morning, which sock you put on first, what color you're wearing, do I go to church, do I stay home, do I watch golf or football, 
Do I check my email or Facebook? Do I call my friends? Do I eat breakfast? I mean, how many decisions? Adults make, Cornell University research says adults make 35,000 decisions a day. Youth, a little bit like half of that because your lives aren't as complex as adults. And so when you make decisions like this, are your decisions grounded in a way that it leads to health and glorifying God? So 1 Samuel 16 challenges our decision-making process, and this chapter is a glimpse on, man, how do we live seeing from God's perspective? So 1 Samuel 16, the few first point that comes out is this. How we assess, if God looks at the heart, how we assess people needs refining. So let me explain that. There's judgmental and there's discerning. There's judgmental and discerning. What's the difference? Judgmental is, I'm better than you. I am so awesome. Man, look at you. Man, you stink. That's judgmental. It comes out of your heart. Discerning, you're supposed to judge people with discernment. Who do I get that from? Jesus Christ. Jesus clearly commands against judging, but in Matthew 7, 15, look what he says. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. What is he saying? Don't be judgmental out of a righteous, self-righteous, arrogant heart and condemn people, but in your community, discern with judgment who may be wolves in sheep clothing. So when I go to church, people are like, you can't judge me. Like, I'm not judging you, but if God is calling us to be a holy community, what does that mean? And so this is the difference. And how we assess people needs to be finding. And so we go back to the question of what does God look for in discerning? Heart. Not outward appearance. Not titles. Not accomplishments. Oh, you're the Pope. Oh, you're the pastor. You're a lawyer. Oh, you're a doctor. You're a school teacher. You're a, pa- you're, you're a Bible study teacher. God says, I don't look at that. I look at the, your heart. And so, so then when we come, when we care more about what God cares about in our hearts and less about what other people say about us, you have entered into spiritual growth. Let me say that one more time. When you care more about what God thinks of your heart, more than what other people think about you, now you are spiritually growing. So Mark Sayers, my, one of my favorite professors and author, writes this. Today, he quotes, however, we are not bothered when our actions do not match our rhetoric. This is because our basic understanding of what it means to be good has changed. Listen to this. It is not as important that we are good as it is that we appear good. Man, that is so powerful. He's saying this, folks. In America, majority of us live like this. We don't care that we're good. We care more that we appear to everyone else around us as good. We're a bunch of hypocrites. That's what we are. I see it all the time in my life. I see it all the time in social media. I see it all the time in the news. We rather appear good to people than to be good. 
because image is everything. And God is saying, look, look, let's reassess this differently. I don't look at your credentials. I look at your heart. So what does that mean? What is the condition of your heart before God? Questions to ask yourself. Do I desire to obey God? Do I long for God? That's an indicator that maybe my heart is getting closer. Maybe my heart is becoming right. Am I fully surrendered in my heart to God? Or am I still in the captain's chair driving this boat? David was a sinner. God didn't call David because David was sinless. God called David because by grace, David received humbly God's invitation with mercy. So that's the first thing we see in 1 Samuel. Second, what or who ultimately leads our life if our heart matters the most? It must be settled once and for all. What or who ultimately leads our lives must be settled once and for all in our hearts and in our actions. So being led by God means to prefer God's perspective in all matters. You can't say, for example, like, I love church, I love God, I love Jesus. Hey, that song was great. Worship really rocked me. And you go home and you live life as if you're the charge. You don't ask how God would choose things. They call that practical atheists. Let me put it another way. Being led by God will cause you to disagree with God. When you're led by God, surprise, you might actually find yourself disagreeing with God. And I got news for us. We're probably not right. Tim Keller says this. I like how Tim Keller says it. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Let me say that one more time. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. So in other words, when you walk with God and see his word, he's going to take you, he's going to rub against you, he's going to challenge your worldview. He's going to challenge your opinions. And if your God never does that, you might be making a God that fits your image rather than you molding to God's image. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel grieves over Saul. Samuel's first response to God, God saying, I want a new king, is he's sad. Samuel's perspective going to find a new king is, Saul's going to kill me. Samuel's perspective in finding a new king amongst the brothers is, it must be the tallest one, and God says, I've chosen the runt. Being led by God means we will enter suffering. We will find ourselves challenged in our comfort zones and ideals because God is God and he's truth and we are being molded to him. So generally, uh, younger generations find it tougher to do this than older generations. We're all culpable, but older generations, just you could breathe. You could be like, Phew. Because there's a book called iGen, and someone did a generation study on the younger generations. Um, these are the people, kids born from 1985 to 2015. And so this is the younger generation. And the author, Jean, she writes this about this new generation that she was studying. By the way, can you imagine you're born and all you see is iPhones? You've never known one of these phones? Like, remember this? Kids, do you, you guys, the youth group is just blank right now. VHS cassette tapes, 
audio tapes. So this is what the author writes. The next generation, this is something going against them. Wanting to feel safe all of the time, <laughs> that's the beginning of the sentence, can also lead to wanting to protect against emotional upset. The concern with emotional safety is somewhat unique to iGen. That's what she calls this generation. That can include preventing bad experiences, sidestepping situations that might be uncomfortable, and avoiding people with ideas different from their own. That's where things get dicey, both for iGen and for the older generations struggling to understand them. So what the author is saying is this generation, is, if someone disagrees with them, they don't dialogue. Remember that? Our government doesn't practice that either. <laughs> I disagree with you. Well, we're not talking ever again. And instead of saying, why do you disagree? Help me to understand your position. Show me where we can meet. Where, how can we fix the issue instead of fighting one another? So the younger generations, they keep moving. So one of the clearest factors is when job gets tough, my generation was, my mom would say, well, you tough it out. You pray and tough it out. The younger generation is, I'm going to quit and move to the next easier job that I don't need to be negative about. And so she continues and she says, kids need to learn that you need to feel bad sometimes. We learn through experience and we learn especially through bad experiences. See, when you follow God with all your heart, you're not going to be led in a comfortable path. You will be embarrassed, you'll be challenged, you'll be struck, and you need to ask yourself, is this decision led by the Holy Spirit or is this decision driven by my longing for convenience? Sometimes we look for churches that are convenient. When God says, if you follow me, you will suffer. You will lose your life, but follow me. But we believe in America, I want to go to a church that meets my needs, makes me feel happy and comfortable and peaceful. I don't know if that's what Jesus ever preached. So, lastly, in 1 Samuel, we recognize this. A timeline of your life has to fit with God's schedule, not yours. The timeline of your life fits with God's schedule, not... So I had this statement. You're only one day away from God's perfect plan. You're only one day away from God's perfect plan. You could be waiting 50 years, and just like that, God unfolds his perfect plan. What's the difference between Saul and David? Saul was tormented. He rejected God. He needed music to soothe his torment. A servant says to Saul, I know somebody who can come and play the music for you. And of all the people, guess who they find by this miraculous coincidence? David. David comes and plays music for Saul. On that same day, what we, Saul doesn't realize is Samuel was out with Jesse's family and Jesse... <laughs> has all these sons, and David is tending sheep. And David has no clue what's going on. He's doing his job. He's tending sheep. And then it says, Samuel took the horn of oil, called David in, and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Like, just, this is powerful. You're the youngest son. You have big brothers. How many of you have big brothers? And big sisters. How many of you are the youngest? I'm the youngest. Yes, youngest. We rule. And so just picture this. You got seven big brothers, and the youngest one comes in. 
And three things happens to David on this one day, just like this. He's anointed by oil by a prophet of God. That's a big deal. I don't care what you think about Donald Trump, but if Donald Trump tw- tweets, today I'm going to hang out with Jason Coe in Cypress, California, I'm going to be like, come on over. That's pretty cool. Get to hang out with the president. But the prophet Samuel was even greater because he was a mouthpiece of God. Second, he was anointed before his brothers. How cool is that? Remember me? You tease me? Check it out. <laughs> and then third thing happened. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, all within 24 hours. And then he was picked by Saul to come into his throne room and play music for him. Following God is not easy, but how long does it take for God to turn the switch on and to let your plan unfold in your life? One day away. It could happen today. See, I don't think God is Presbyterian. Because Presbyterians would say, well, let's talk to a committee, then we'll talk to the session, then we'll talk to the presbytery, and then we'll see your plan unfold. I love Presbyterian, but I'm just being real here. But God's saying, hey, I want to use you. Today's a day. You're one day away. Is your heart ready? This is why your heart has to be ready. God is ready to use you one day's notice, anytime, and he'll turn it upside down. God's timing is beautiful. And during the session, a Bible study session on Wednesday, just one quick insight from one of our members said, how incredible. This shepherd boy had no idea what it means to be a king. And God made it so that Saul would pick David, and David gets front row seat of how to be a king. Amazing. So in summary, how we decide must evolve. The way we depend on God must grow daily. Where we are headed must be directed by God. And let me just end with this little thought. Saul's kingdom ended. David's begins, and what is God doing here? Because of one shepherd boy? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7 and 11. Let me just read these two. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the house will do it. And Isaiah 11, 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Because of the heart of one shepherd boy, God unleashes his plan of salvation that through David, Jesus would come and be born. And David's kingdom would reign forever. How? Because his great-great-great-great-great-grandson was the king of kings that we've been waiting for. This is why God looks at your heart, not your brilliance, not your strategy, not your beauty, He wants your heart, and through your heart, God can unfold his wonderful plan. Church, how is your heart? Let's pray. God, may this message not be the three best ways to live or top ten ways of getting holier. May this message just simply be a check engine light indicating each of us in this room, every single one of us, needs to really reassess where our heart condition is before you because, God, you don't look at the outward appearance. You look at the heart. 
And we do that because we love you, we are loved by you, because we've been redeemed for a better life. And we pray that, God, that you would allow hearts to be purified and sanctified by the one person that could do it, Jesus Christ. And so in his name and by his grace, we approach you boldly with confidence and humility to say, God, here's our hearts. Take it. Cleanse it. And do whatever you desire. I am yours. And may we have the cry of David as we live this life forward to be a church, family, a community, leaders who can proclaim your glorious truth wherever we go that the Son of God has come and that the new life is possible and that you will reign forever and ever on the throne. We pray the prayer that you taught us as you, we pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever.